Happy Friday. I wasn't going to do a Black History Month show, but then it turns out that if I don't, I've seen what's out there and it's, uh, it's not pretty, right? So this is going to be your Black History Month show. Um, it's an interesting month for me because I actually don't think it makes sense without a white terrorism month <laughs> because, you know, my dad's from Ghana. In Ghana, he was Ashanti. He didn't come uh, become black till he, till he got here. And when he got here, you know, the only reason you're black is because, like, white people are terrorists so, um, and sociopaths. So black history should, uh, in a well-ordered world, come with a white terror, uh, come, uh, come with a companion month on just white terrorism, because I think that's what really governs race in America. And, but I'm going to talk a little bit about black history, how we do it right, how we do it wrong. And I think it'll be, it'll be a fascinating show, I suspect. I strongly suspect. And uh, I'm going to start it off with, I want to wait till people file in before I get to the real anecdote, because I, I was talking to a buddy yesterday and it was fantastic. Oh, while people are waiting, you know, people ask me about stock advice. I don't know why. Um, but I will say that Urban, I, I, this is not stock advice. I do not know anything. I am dumb money. I do know that Urban One is a black owned company that's on Robin Hood. Um, it might do pretty well for this month. I, apparently, it shoots up every every February and then gets cut out uh, in March. So <laughs> maybe you want to make some quick money, or maybe you want to invest in a black-owned company, uh, make you feel good, or pressure. What you should do is, if you have any connections with white people, pressure them to invest in a black-owned company. And if it starts going down, you cut out and leave them holding the bag. Um, that's what you know. Uh, if they, uh, it's not going anywhere. So if you want to uh, try to pump and dump some black people, not black people, like, like I said, you get white people to invest in it and then you leave before they do. And, and I don't know, maybe you can make a little, maybe you can't. That's urban one. Um, apparently it's run out of Maryland. Anyway, let us, you and I talk about black history month. And, you know, honestly, why I did the show and why I like what committed me to doing this show was I saw this. Now, mind you, this is in Toronto. So it's in Canada, but this is unacceptable. And if <laughs> and if and this is what happens when you don't control your own message. And look at that. I just like to sit with that. And I don't know. What does that mean, people? It means I need to do a Black History Month show because people are confused. People are confused about what it means to be black in these United States, and that's the cost. And let me hit the opening. To the beach, yo.
So now that people are here, let me tell, let me, let me, let me start it off with a story. Gather around, I'm going to tell a little story about a, a friend I was talking to a few days ago. He was in the venture capital scene a few years back. And uh, his company was going to buy Rosetta Stone, you know, the foreign language learning company. And, you know, they were putting together the deal and, you know, they were crunching the numbers. And uh, his company asked, his fund asked Rosetta Stone people, so what do you guys spend in customer service? And the Rosetta Stone people said, like, listen, we actually don't spend a lot of money in customer service. And he's like, how don't you, you don't spend any money in customer service? And the Rosetta Stone people said, like, no, the thing is, nobody opens the box. Right? Nobody opens the box. Right? So we sell aspiration to, um, to learn a language. We have a brand and we spend a lot of money on marketing, but the product, ah, and we market it such that if it doesn't work, they blame themselves, not us. So we don't, we don't have to worry about customer service. Like we don't have to, we don't, we don't have to, you know, we, 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 we're, we're in the marketing business and um, we're in the aspiration business not in the language learning business, <laughs> two different businesses. You don't know that that's two different businesses. That's how the Rosetta Stone people eat. And you know, gym memberships are the same uh, way. They sell aspiration, which um, is one thing. The question is, what is time selling right here? What is time selling right here? Look at Amanda Gorman, black excellence, with an interview with Michelle Obama and with Ibram Kindi writing a black renaissance. I don't want any renaissance where black people still end up broke at the end. They're broke before, they're broke during, and then they're broke after. No renaissance for me. I'll take, like, nope, I want black people working. Right, so what are they selling? That's the Rosetta Stone for Negroes. <laughs> They're selling aspiration. And hopefully you stroke out, die of COVID, or have a heart attack before you realize, while you blame yourself for not, um, for not you know, arriving like Michelle Obama. Um, you blame yourself for not arriving, arriving, and, and the, and, and the merry-go-round merry keeps going, right? Even MLK talked about this with Ralph Bunchy. He was like, you know what? People look at Ralph Bunchy and it's like they'll be broke, but they look at him and as if like all of his dignity can be like parceled out to 20 million at the time. It's 20 million. Now it's 40 million. All of that, like at the time, um, it could be parceled out to all of those little Negroes. Just, you just have one guy to look up to and it's like his dignity gets parceled out. And that is not the right way to talk about the struggle. This is what MLK said. Like that, that was MLK. Um, so this is the hustle. Like that is, they're selling, time is selling aspiration. Because if you sell aspiration, then you don't have to actually secure black people jobs and assets. I have a problem with that. Um, but I think the Rosetta Stone story is appropriate. Um, they weren't selling language learning. They were selling aspiration so they put their money in marketing not actually like figuring out and then like sold a story about how you could do it through apps but the truth is 
it was never going to work. And they don't care because this is the kicker. They get you to blame yourself. And I'll tell you, if you control the black mind, you control black behinds. And if you can get black people to blame themselves, then you have won the game. You have won the game. Um, you know, there's a billion dollar industry in controlling the black mind because we have, we have a legitimate claim. And when you have a legitimate claim, you, like, you have to keep us distracted from actually making our legitimate claim. And, you know, the legitimate claim is America's legitimate claim. Everyone deserves a good job and assets, but black people deserve them also and especially. And I want a big chunk of Oregon <laughs> just for black people. Coastal line. Um, so what does this, what does it mean that people sell us aspiration as opposed to assets? What does it mean that we have a Black History Month that celebrates black people but doesn't talk about white terrorism? And you don't really understand. Nothing about black life makes sense unless you understand white terrorism and that it is terrorism. That we have a culture that produces regularly sociopaths and that black people are a colony within a marginally functional America. We are the stable underclass um, as a community. And if we fight back, there will be blood. Um, because they're not going to give it up voluntarily. Like some, like this is so, like what does it mean to be a colonized people, an internal colony in the United States? Well, it means every now and then you get pictures of black excellence. You get an article about Kamala Harris you know, broke the tie, so we get a stimulus. You won't get the article that says, like, black people still be broke. <laughs> like, like, this is a $1,400. We don't have $1,400 problems. Even if we had $1,400 problems back in November, by now, like, interest, <laughs> like the VIG, like, it's gone up. We don't have $1,400 problems. So you can give everyone Negro a $1,400 check. Like, I don't know. And, you know, it's going to not disproportionately go to us because we're unbanked and it's kind of hard to find us. My dad was a paralegal. And, um, you know, it's a slip and fall. He worked in a, a law office in L.A. And a lot of people came in with slip and falls. But sometimes it's hard to find them to check because, you know, he worked in, in what there was a black L.A. He worked in there. And, some, and like, you know, we're mobile people. We keep getting run out because we can't afford to live places, so it's hard to get us our money. So that's the same thing that happens with the last stimulus check. Black people were disproportionately left out of it because we're unbanked. Even I went without a, I went without a bank for about five years. I got hit with a bunch of Chase or Wells Fargo fees after being with them for like a decade. This is back in my salary days, like late 20s, something like that. I, I got hit with a bunch of late fees. I think I'd gotten my check. I'd gotten my paycheck, and then I went to Walgreens and picked up a toothbrush, and I took myself to a movie, and then, like, I did something else. And I did three, I got my check, deposited it, did those three things. The check didn't clear uh, for a day, and I got hit with, like, three overdraft fees um, within, like, <laughs> within the span of, like, within that day. And then it came immediately out of my check when it hit that same day. And that's when I, I quit Wells Fargo after, 50, after 10 years. I, got the, I started with them when I was 18 and left when I was 28 because of that. And I was just like, no, I can't do that. Especially at the time I was living at the margin. And when you're at the margin, $75, you can't take a hit like that. Not, not when you're living at the margin like I was. 
So um, I was unbanked for years. Just because, I, you know, you go to a check cashing place, they take those right off. And, and like, you don't have to worry about hidden fees. But, um, yeah, so... I'm, I'm a by the way, I am a fan of universal banking. I mean, if, if you're going to have, if you need a bank account in order to be um, a functioning citizen in civil society, then um, you need to secure people a bank account. Like, and in terms of overdraft, you just deny the card if it's going to send someone over. Like, it's, it's, this isn't that complicated of an issue. But instead, we like predatory banking. And we privatize it. Oh, and I'm okay with privatizing a private private bank, but then you have to like regulate them so they they don't fleece people for both wanting to be functional and um, not having access to good jobs. And I want to you know actually give people access to good jobs to good jobs and fair wages. So um, let's go back to not this picture, this picture that launched this show. What's awful about, and there's a lot of awful things. <laughs> like, it's like they just pointed, they just drew, uh, they, they, they painted pictures of all of the black guys they locked up. <laughs> like that's, that's, what does that mean? And how is this even like, like we have failed. This is what happens when we, we, we let other people control our story. Like this is, that's a portrait of failure, right? So there's a great book by Houston Baker called Betrayal. It's a nice little book. Not great, but it's a nice little book. And he talks about how the uh, real legacy of Martin Luther King, what he did do for the civil rights movement, what was important for a nonviolent um, um, civil disobedience is he got people over their fear of jail. As long as you were scared of the white man's jail, you weren't going to do nothing. Like nothing like, and I, I think that's true today. As long, if you're scared of getting arrested, then you're not, no very little good you can do. I mean, you can give me money, which I think you should. Go ahead, be scared of getting arrested, but, uh, and, or if you're scared of losing your job, like, I just don't think there's much you can do for black people because your job depends on treating black people like we've always been treated, and that's not good enough. So um, if, 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 that's, if that's your, if you're like, well, I'll help black people, but I don't want to lose my job. That's, you're not going to help. You're not going to do anything for black people. The best thing you can do is send your money from your job to me. Because, you know, doing a show like this makes me down white unemployable. That's www.funkyacademic.com. Kick in $5, $15, or $50 a month and tell your friends and, and send this around because I think it's important, the quality of, of wisdom that I'm willing to dispense instead of go and read to my kids, which I'm going to go do right after this um, every week about this time. So. Uh, Baker was arguing that MLK's real contribution to the movement was he just got over people's, he, he destigmatized jail. And once you destigmatize jail, you have to understand that the state will use your fear of jail in order to control you. So once you take away that fear of jail, that's one less um, um, thing to be afraid of and one more way, like a better way that you can actually secure justice for your people. Um, so I think that's important. I think King, uh, and, but when you put King's picture on a police car, I think that sends the wrong message. <laughs> it, it suggests that they were on the same side. <laughs> Mandela's on there. So um, I, don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't know what to do with that, but it's not good. And this is why we need like a, more museums of white terrorism 
Because like that's the problem is we let white people tell the story about themselves, and then black people, um, we think it's a victory when we just get to tell the story about ourselves. But no, we need to tell the story about white people, because without that, everyone's confused. If you don't understand white supremacy, and this is what Neil Levy Fuller said, and I think he's right. If you don't understand white supremacy, its operations, and everything else that you think you understand, will only confuse you. Like. And this is why, like, even people who think they're, like, hip on gender, if they don't understand white supremacy, they are dangerous. <laughs> they might as well be a fed. And, turns out, Gloria Steinem actually worked for the CIA. So, like, there is that. Um, so, we need to actually understand white terrorism as the motivating, like, underbelly of the United States. It's the reason why we don't have nice things because um, the terrorists, the terrorists, and the, the legitimized and 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 every like we're scared that they'll pop off. Um. So that's but that's and so far as we live in a democracy, we just need to be honest about like the curriculum, and and how we create steadily these quality this quality of terror terrorists that like are just our everyday teachers and cops and, and nurses and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. So your black history for me is that we should have a companion month because you don't really understand black people in the United States unless you understand that our culture, both um, internally and externally, was formed by terrorism. I mean, especially since we came over from slaves and pretty much wiped out, like, culturally. Um, and like were formed in the crucible of terrorism in the United States. Like to be black, to understand blackness is to understand the response to the sociopaths we live next to. And for example, and you're like, well, that's not true. That's not, that, that was a that was hundred years ago. I'm going to give you, let me see if I can get the clip. Oh, I can. I'm going to give you Shirley Sherrod and you tell me what you think of this. This is Shirley Sherrod. She worked for Obama until Obama fired her for making white people nervous or for like, someone insinuating that she may have made white people nervous and then so she got fired but this is Shirley Sherrod talking about her dad and um this is your black history now your your father's killer was never prosecuted never um what you came to learn after the event was that it did have to do with a dispute over a cow right? yeah we he had he had cows um and I don't know how they, our farm, we had farmland adjoining each other. And some of his cows had actually gotten in our pasture in 1963. They came to round them up to get them, but there was one they could not round up. He left them there. And then on the morning of March the 14th, 1965, we met him when we were on our way to church. And uh, my father told him, you know, if you come tomorrow, he would get some others to come and help because they, they, they knew this was a problem cow. And, uh, but the next morning when everyone gathered at the pasture, this man started claiming five or six of our best cows and my father argued with him. And according to the others, my father said, we don't have to keep arguing, we'll just go to court. And he was actually going to his truck. The man is still talking, he turned around to say something and that's when he was shot. Mm -hmm. So, struggles over land. Mm -hmm. um, or throughout your story. Now, your... 
So we all know that that land is still in the white family. Like they still own land. Like nothing happened. Nothing happened. And that's just because, and we know that, that that guy's grandkid looks up to his grandpappy and he was taught by his grandmama to, to look up to his grand, not even grand, like how old these people, like how these people are still alive, you have to understand. Um, and the money still flows. And since the stock market is what it is, it's just kind of grown. Right? So um, this idea that this was so long ago is ridiculous. Or this idea that the uh, white wealth that was built off of black degradation has somehow gone astray. Um, no, it's, it's grown and now uses, it's used to control. I'm sure the same families who controlled black people 70 years ago control black people and probably in that same town today. I, I bet the mechanisms aren't much more sophisticated either. Right? So what does that mean? Like, it means that we need to start talking about white terrorism. Like, that shouldn't be, that's a common story. That's a common story of grandparents and, and, and like, everyone's scared of white people. Everyone, like, and I know, I remember, um, I was talking to another faculty member, I was talking to a faculty member at, on campus, and this guy is like a black professor, full professor, like, been here since 87. And I was telling him what I was teaching in class, he was like, ooh, you talk about that stuff in class? Ooh, I don't know. You know, I, you're, you're bolder than I am. This is a grown black man. Grown, he, he's in his 60s. Grown black man. He's trying to make it to retirement. And uh, late 50s, early 60s. And he's like, well, you see, listen, man. I'm from Mississippi. So in Mississippi, if, uh, yeah, I know you're from California, but I'm from Mississippi. In Mississippi, where I grew up, if a white guy accuses you of, of, stealing if 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 a white guy steals your car and you go to the cops and say that white guy stole my car um the first thing the cop's going to say to you is are you accusing him of being a liar and then you have to find yourself saying like i know well i'm not are you accusing him of being a liar and the first thing you have to do is say like well you know i don't know i'm just saying he might have gotten confused about thinking that it's his car and then you have to start doing all these stories and like that's just the way i grew up and that's how I've gotten this job and kept this job. And, and that's, that's that. And I am not that Negro. <laughs> I'd say, he took my car. He took it. Get him. I want my car back. Um, and, but yeah, but he was like, yeah. So I just, you know, in dealing, and the way, the way to get along, the way I was brought up to get along, you have to make up all these stories to say like, no, it's actually not the white person's fault because he's scared of triggering like a lynch mob. Um, and I think that's, un that's unfortunate. And this idea that like that man is free even today, I don't think that's free. Whatever he is, even, he's got a good job, but he's scared to talk to white people. And if you're scared to talk to white people, you're not free. I'll say that again. If you're scared to talk to white people about like white terrorism, you are not free. What you're looking at right now is a free Negro. <laughs> I'm what you call a free Negro. And a lot of people don't see one of these very often. I'm realizing... So that's why I'm, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm emancipated. So if you're scared to talk to white people about white terrorism, then you're not free. And it could be like you're scared of them triggering their violence or you're scared of like it costing you your job. Either way, you're just not free. There's like, there are only so many ways to not be free and you are one of the ways of not being free. And that's, and that's, that's a, a personal degradation, but it also ends up 
being bad for the community because at some point in time, you're gonna have to stand up for stand up for black people. And you have to stand up for black people with some very fat, like in the face of some very fragile yet strangely powerful um, white people. And if you're not willing to stand up for black people in that moment, in that moment, then you're no good for the, uh, you're no good for the, for the cause. Now I'm going to, I'm going to end with one story about, uh, you know, a lot of these white progressive organizations say like, we have a hard time. Uh, attracting black people to uh, our meetings. And like, well, we want to do good things. We want to do good racial justice things. Well, the thing is, here's the deal. You, you're not serious, right? So these white progressive meetings and like white racial justice meetings, they want to do like, they still want to reserve the right to keep their inheritance, right? So at the end of the day, like they might be 90% better than like their cousins, but that 10% always leaves us holding the bag. That 10% gets us killed. That, that, that like, they're, like, when you need them to stand up and they might sit on their hands. Or, like, you think that they're in for the cause and then all of a sudden, like, the, your cause isn't feminist for, enough for them or it's not environmentally friendly enough for them or it's not um, immigrant friendly enough for them. Like, no. Like, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna be an ally for black people, you need to be black first. You need to be black first. Not necessarily only, but it needs to have like some sort of Trump. We call the Trump spades. <laughs> like it's been whist, and we call spades. Like, like, like we call the Trump, and the Trump is always. You can have an ace in another suit, and that ace might work in other suits. But as soon as I like, as soon as I drop a spade, you need to get in line, or like we end up, we end up. We're not going to Boston, like with the train. Like we don't, we don't win the game. Like that's the only way racial justice works because everything else can get weaponized. Like it all ends in black with black men swinging. Like it all ends in black men in jail. It all ends. It all ends with black men disposable. Like all of those other isms: environmentalism, mentalism, feminism. Um, you know, you know, open casual borders. It all just ends with black men, black male disposability. So unless black male disposability is your number one thing, everything else will get captured. And in when I need you the most, you're going to end up siding with the people who happen to think that black men, it's okay, black men are disposable as long as we save all of these other people. <laughs> so. Um, so if you want black people to go to your progressive group, like you, you gotta actually, I need to see you talking tough to a white woman, vegan, environmentalist, feminist in front of her kids. If I see you like giving her the business on behalf of black people and saying like, no, you need to taking food out of her kid's mouth and giving it to black people. That's when I know you're for real. If you're not willing to do that, cause that's what it's going to come to. If you're not willing to do that, then like you're just a dicey ally and I'm not going to go to your meeting. It's just kind of a waste of my time. Um, you know, I, you can't really, like you're unreliable allies because at the end of the day, you'll throw us under the bus for even white people you don't like when it gets like you care about their feelings too much. You need to not care about their feelings if you're an ally for black people. You need to be willing to risk your job. You need to be willing to risk jail. You need to be willing to risk your inheritance. So if the people at your little white progressive meeting aren't willing to do all that, um, then like, I, you know, it's just kind of a lot of talk, but 
That's what it's going to come to for black people to, to, to be free. Once again, uh, thank you for your time. I will see you another time. Knowledge and insight that will help you not squander your life and kind of rescue meaning from it. Then go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com and kick in five, fifteen, or fifty dollars a month, or make one enormous donations. I like the monthlies because it allows me to budget more, and that'll help me, you know, with a marketing budget or getting better equipment that works all the time. Because a lot of in a lot of ways, freedom means having equipment that works every time you turn it on. <laughs> and I want to be a free Negro. So um, if you like what I do, go to funkyacademic.com and contribute. Thanks often comes in the form of cash. And the site takes credit cards.